Worry is worship. Worry is worship and worry is worthless. As I read the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34, I cannot escape from this conclusion. Worry is worshiping a false god called mammon, also known as money or materialism, and it's worthless. John Wesley once said, I could no more worry than I could curse or swear. Would you please find in your Bible Matthew 6 and verse 25 and follow along as I read the teaching of Jesus about worry. Depending on which version you have, you'll find the words worry or anxious five or six times in these few verses. What does Jesus teach us about worry? Matthew 6, verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious or do not worry for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life's span? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of it for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. A well-known pastor many years ago, Pastor R.C. Trench, once developed a mortal fear of becoming paralyzed. He worried so much about losing all feelings in his legs that he developed a habit of pinching one leg habitually just to make sure he could still feel it. Then one evening at a dinner party, seated at the table, he pinched and felt nothing. He pinched even harder. Still nothing. He clamped down and he said, oh no. It's happened at last, at last, total loss of sensation in my right leg. Reverend, said the lady sitting next to him, that is my leg you are pinching. (laughs) Worry can cause all kinds of problems. Three times, Jesus commands us, do not worry. Verse 25, verse 31 Again in verse 44. Three times he confirms that worry is worthless. Verse 27, verse 28, and verse 31. But even with all this emphasis on worry, there's much more here than just don't worry, be happy. 
Worry, Jesus shows us, is the opposite of faith. Trust in God. Confidence in God. When we worry about the most basic things, even the most basic things, like food, drink, and clothing, we are failing to trust God. So Jesus' words here teach us not to worry. But they also teach us to trust God, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's our main thought for today. Jesus' words teach us not to worry, and they also teach us to trust God, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, the first three words of verse 25 say, for this reason. For what reason? Well, verse 24 is the reason. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, or other versions, God and money. When earthly treasures captivate our heart, we are worshiping this false god called mammon. And so Jesus taught his disciples to stop storing up treasures in heaven, verse 19, to stockpile their treasures in heaven, verse 20, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, verse 21. So this preoccupation with luxuries, with goodies called treasure on earth is idolatry, but so is worry. These simple words, for this reason, connect the thought of verses 19 to 24 with the the passage today, verses 25 to 34. You can't serve both God and money. You can't worship God while seeking treasures here on earth. For this reason, do not be anxious. Don't worry. Even about the most fundamental necessities, Jesus says, about food and drink and clothing, because worry is yet another way of worshiping mammon. That's the context. Now, we also need to know, what is worry? In the old King James Version, verse 25 says, Take no thought about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Is Jesus telling us not even to think about these things? No. In older English, the the word thought actually meant anxious thought, or worry. Our English word worry comes from an old German word, vergen, which means to strangle or to choke. When we worry, we are wrestling with a problem as if we could strangle it and choke it to death. And so worry is the excessive, obsessive attention to a problem. It's the opposite of faith, trust, and contentment. When you bring something small up close to your eye, it blocks your view of larger things. Worry is like that. Worry brings a problem so close to our mind that we cannot see the biggest thing. We can't see God. Now that's worry. Here's another question. Can we be concerned about something without worry? Yes, the Bible has a handful of examples of good, positive concern. For example, Paul said about Timothy in Philippians 2.20, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Or 2 Corinthians 11.28, Paul writes about himself. He says, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. 
it's okay to be concerned. And interestingly enough, the word translated concern there is exactly the same word translated worry in the passage we're reading from Matthew chapter 6. It's a different context having a different shade of, of meaning. Concern for the people of God, concerns for the needs of our family and our friends is a good thing. Just as Timothy was concerned for the church in Philippi. Thought, yes. Concern, yes. Worry, no. Now, we all have many concerns. Concern can take one of two directions. It can take one of two paths. It can take the wrong path where it goes into worry and anxiety. We're worried about something and it distracts us. And after some distraction, it divides our attention. And pretty soon we feel distress and then it disables us. That's the path of worry or anxiety. But worry doesn't have to take that path. It can take the other path. The path that Joel read for us in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious or worried for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And and so when we experience concern, it should lead us not to anxiety, not to worry, but to prayer, and then to thanksgiving, and then to this supernatural peace. That peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. Well, having set that lofty goal, how do we get there? Let's learn from Jesus. In Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34, Jesus teaches three facts and then two acts to overcome worry. That's our outline. Three facts and then two acts to overcome worry. First of all, let's look at the facts. Any of you remember the old TV show, Dragnet? Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Fact number one, our Father is faithful. We overcome worry by knowing, first of all, that God, our Father, is faithful. Jesus teaches and illustrates this fact with three illustrations. The first is verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious, don't worry for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The the first illustration, the first teaching point is that question. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus is reminding us that God gave us life. God gave us the gift of a body. And if God has given us those gifts, won't he give us with them the things that we need? Of course he will. It is as Paul said in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God has given us the Lord Jesus Christ. His own son, crucified on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. If God has already given you that great a gift, is there anything that he will withhold that we need? 
No, there's not. It's the same thought here. God has given us great gifts, the gift of life, the gift of a body. Won't God give you what you need for those things? Second, Jesus illustrates this fact that our Father is faithful from the animal kingdom. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? The land of Israel is a bird paradise. It is a geographical crossroads of bird migration. So there are hundreds of species of birds there. Now remember, Jesus is outdoors. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps Jesus pointed to a flock of birds as he spoke these words, or maybe to a bird on a branch. If God cares for these birds, how much more will he care for you who are created in his image and his likeness? How much more will he care for you who are his children? Said the robin to the sparrow, I would really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. God's care for the animal kingdom proves that our father is faithful. And when we worry, when we doubt, we're doubting or even denying our Heavenly Father. You're worth much more to God than birds because you're His child. He adopted you. He created you in His image and likeness. And by the way, these words, are you not worth much more than those birds, remind us that humans and animals are not equal. There are people who try to claim that today. We're all just, you know, inhabiting this planet together and we're all equal. Those words are denied and debunked by the word of Jesus. Are you not worth much more than they? Jesus proves his point with a third illustration from the plant kingdom. All flora and fauna, all plants and animals testify to our Father's faithfulness. Verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon, the richest king who ever lived, the, the man who had gold everywhere, in all his glory, did not clothe himself like a flower. If God so arrays the grass of the field which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Jesus, again, points to something immediately nearby, the flowers growing in the grass. If God dresses up the grass with flowers, both of which are completely temporary, they're, they're gone in a few days, how much more will he care for his children who live forever? Notice that Jesus is constantly referring to God as your father, your father. He's not the bird's father. He's their creator. He's not the flower's father. He's its maker. But you, in Jesus Christ, God adopted you. He chose you to be his child, to be part of his family. And he brought you into a special relationship where you can call him Abba, 
Father. The word means daddy. Somebody has well said, too often when we look at our Heavenly Father, we look at his hands to see what he has to give to us. Let us not look to his hands, but to his face, where we shall see how much he loves us. Let's not look at God's hands to see what he has to give to us. Let us look at God's face to see how much he loves us. When we worry, we're consumed and captivated, we're divided and distracted, and we forget that our Father loves us. J.I. Packer, the famous British pastor, teacher, author, theologian, wrote that classic book, Knowing God. He was once asked, what gives him joy? Listen to his answer. The first and basic thing, he said, is knowing that I'm a child of God, knowing that I'm secure in his hands, that he is my heavenly father, that this is his world, and everything that happens to me is programmed by him for my good, so that in the deepest sense, I have nothing to worry about. Then he added, this is the complete opposite of where I was and what I was before I became a Christian. Then I was running scared, or at least nervous. I was insecure. I was frightened of many things. God has changed all that. There is joy in the knowledge of relationship. J.I. Packer. Your father's faithful. That is the first fact that Jesus wants you to know. The second fact is that our fretting is fruitless. Our fretting is fruitless. Look at verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Worry accomplishes nothing. It's fruitless. It's worthless. Who, by worrying, can add even an hour to their life? In fact, the exact opposite is true, isn't it? Dr. Charles Mayo, founder of the famous Mayo Clinic, wrote this. Worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I have never met a man or known a man to die of overwork, but I have known a lot who died of worry. Worry can kill you. Dr. Leonard Fosdick of Northwestern University proved in his research that worry even speeds up tooth decay. There's your fun fact for today. Worry will even rot your teeth. Someone else has said, ulcers are not caused by what you eat, but by what is eating you. By worry, you can't change the past. By worry, you can't fix the future. Worry does absolutely nothing constructive. It's completely destructive, and it is fruitless. And so Jesus teaches us three facts. Our Father is faithful. Our fretting is fruitless. And third, our fear is faithless. Our fear is faithless. And by fear, I mean that distracting, dividing, debilitating worry. It is not of faith. Verse 30 and 31. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not so much more do for you, O man of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? Verse 30 ends with a slap in the faith. O men 
of little faith. And that, that is the root of worry. Little faith. These are very interesting words, O oh, men of you, little faith. Jesus uses these words exactly four times in the Gospels. And every time he uses these words, he's speaking to people who are doubting or worrying about something. After this, the, the next incident is Matthew 8.26. Jesus and his disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is worn out. He is sleeping in the front of the boat when a massive storm whips up. And, and Jesus' disciples, afraid that they are about to sink and they're about to die, they wake up Jesus screaming at him, Master, we're about to die. Matthew eight twenty six. he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. That's a true story. Jesus the creator of the universe, can speak a word and completely still a massive storm. Next time we have a great thunderstorm, you know, crashing and booming and wind and howling and and lightning and all that stuff, just stop and think. Jesus could speak a word and it would all stop just like that. And don't worry. Because Jesus says, why are you worried Oh, you of little faith. It's a true story, and yet it's a lesson about life. When we panic because of the storms that come upon our lives, we are those of little faith. Next incident. Matthew 14.30 is also on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, but this time Jesus isn't in the boat. Jesus comes walking on the water towards his disciples. And good old Peter says, that looks like fun. Lord, let me do that too. And Jesus says, okay, get out of the boat and start walking. And then Matthew fourteen thirty, But seeing the wind, he, Peter, became afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? It's a true story. Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke a word and it all existed, can walk on the water, no problem. He can bid his disciples to walk on the water if he so desires. But when we see the wind, when we realize, hey, I could be in big trouble here, we begin to doubt, we begin to sink, He says, why did you doubt, O you of little faith? The final incident for these words in the Bible is Matthew 16, 8. The disciples are fretting because they forgot to bring food. And Jesus says to them, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Whenever Jesus uses these words, you of little faith, he is speaking to people who are worrying, fretting, and doubting. And so back in Matthew 6.32, we read, For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. For all these things, he's speaking of the, the same things he's already mentioned, food, drink, and clothing. 
And that word eagerly seek, that's, a, that's an intensive word in the original language, which is sometimes translated cray. The Gentiles, the people who don't know God, the unbelievers crave the goods. They crave the stuff. Do you remember the outline of the Sermon on the Mount that I gave last week? It's all a contrast between two ways of living. Chapter 5 is a contrast in the teaching of the two ways. Jesus says, you have heard, but I say to you, you have heard, but I say to you, you have heard, but I say to you. Six times that pattern repeats, you have heard, but I say to you. A contrast in the teaching of two ways. Chapter 6 is a contrast in the living or the doing of two ways. He makes a contrast in the giving, a contrast in the praying, a contrast in the fasting, a contrast in the treasures, and now a contrast in the worry of two ways of life. And chapter 7 makes a contrast in the destiny of those two ways. Jesus right here is making a contrast between the Gentiles, those who are outside of God's covenant, not part of God's people, and those who believe, have genuine faith in God. When we worry, we are acting like Gentiles. We are acting like unbelievers. Fear is faithless. And so Jesus teaches us three facts to overcome fear and worry. Our Father's faithful. Our fretting is fruitless. And our fear is faithless. And then next, Jesus teaches two acts. The the facts are always paired with acts in the Bible, as it should be. Don't be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So, beginning with verse 33, Jesus teaches us two acts for overcoming worry. The first act is seek the kingdom. Matthew 6:33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. This is a very popular verse, often quoted, often seen. What's the context? Worry. What's the first word? But. Jesus is making a contrast between the worry of the Gentiles and the genuine conduct of the people of God to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Don't worry. It's a negative statement. Seek first the kingdom is the positive statement. Jesus is teaching us to place everything else to place seeking first his kingdom before everything and anything else, even food, clothing, and drink. When we worry, we are not seeking his kingdom first. Now, how do we seek God's kingdom? How do we seek God's righteousness? Before I get to that question, let me tell you three qualities of the seeking that Jesus is calling for here. First of all, this word seek is intensive. It is hard work. You don't seek something while laying back in your recliner. I'm looking really hard. No. Seeking is an intensive, active, hard-working word. If you want to seek God's kingdom, you must be willing to struggle and toil for it. Second, this seeking is extensive. It is wide in scope. It demands that we seek him with all our heart, not just in part. 
Psalm 119.2 says, How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. Third, this seeking is continual. The word seek here is a present tense verb, which in the Greek language means ongoing, continual action. You will never say in this life, Eureka, I have found it. I have sought God's kingdom and I have found it. I'm done. You don't get there in this life. It is keep on seeking. Seeking is intensive, it is extensive, and it is continual. So practically speaking, how do we do that? The Bible has a few clues scattered around the Bible for us about how to seek God's kingdom. Listen to this one from Psalm 105, verses 3 to 5. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his, and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. The context of that psalm is worship. In fact, it is public worship. It's the context of all the psalms, really. But glory in his holy name, that's God's people coming together to worship him. Be glad. That's the joy of God's people coming together to express the greatness of God our Father. Remember his wonders which he has done. That's God's people coming together to hear and think upon the words of God and all that God has done. All these phrases are describing God's people worshiping together. And three times, those three verses weave this word seek in with worship. We seek God, first of all, by being a committed part of a local church body who comes together regularly to worship Him. That's how we seek God. Psalm 40, verse 16. Let all who seek Thee rejoice and be glad in Thee. Let those who love Thy salvation continually say, The Lord be magnified. We come together and we seek Him. We also seek him in our private dedication. We could say our public devotion, our private dedication. Listen to the old prophet Daniel in Daniel 9.3. As Daniel says this, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him. How? By prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. How do we seek God? By our private prayers. Even by putting on sackcloth and ashes, symbolic of mourning, of grieving for the wickedness. In this case, Daniel grieving about the wickedness, not only his own sins, but the sins of the world around him. And boy, there are plenty of those to grieve. We come to God in prayer, even in grieving and mourning about the sinfulness of this world. And we seek God. Third way that we seek God is by reading his word. This is the word of God. And it is how we come to know about God and what he has said. Fourth, we seek God with righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
Those two words, his kingdom and his righteousness, are joined together as one idea. We seek God with holiness and purity. We seek God with pure minds and pure lives. We, we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness by honesty and integrity in our work and our business dealings. We seek God by refusing fraud, cheating, telling little lies. We seek God by purity in our thoughts. We, we seek God not only by what we do, but what we don't do, what we don't watch, what we don't go to, not because of some legalistic rules, but because of a desire born out of love to seek God in righteousness. And then last, I would add that seeking takes time. Life is often busy. Life is often too busy. If you're going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you might just need to carve out some time in your life for these kinds of of devotions and practices. You might need to give up a hobby, even a good hobby, to do something more important. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You might need to work a little less or give up a big career goal to do something more important. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Are you willing to take the time that is required to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Now, please don't misunderstand me. This this verse does not excuse us from work. We can't say, well, I'm just going to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and, and forget work. No, the primary way that God provides through our needs is by giving us work to do. Work, yes, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Imagine that someday you will stand before God, because you will. And imagine that he says to you, did you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness? And if you're so bold as to say, yes, Lord, he might just say, how? What is the evidence in your life that you are seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness? I could name five kinds of evidence that we should look for. People who seek first God are people who worship consistently in their church. People who seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness are people who pray diligently, even in sackcloth and ashes. That's just not grace before meals. People who seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness are people who love God's word. They read it. They study it. They meditate on it because in it they find God. People who seek first his kingdom are people who love righteousness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They would rather have righteousness than silver or gold. They would rather have righteousness than cheap entertainment. Fifth, people who seek God make time for him. Do you want to overcome worry? Do you want to have that kind of supernatural peace that surpasses all comprehension, which is the other path? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's the first act. The second act I will call forsaking future fears. That's verse 34. Again, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not worry. 
Do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. There is trouble in this life. There is pain. There is suffering. And nobody who reads the scriptures would deny that. But each day has enough for its own. Trust God today and forsake the future fears of worrying about tomorrow. The devil loves to distract us with worry about tomorrow. Worry about tomorrow is the devil's rent on property that he doesn't own. He doesn't own it because you belong to God, and so does tomorrow. Worry is the devil's rent on property he doesn't own. And so if you find yourself worrying about tomorrow, you need to repent of that sin. So do I. Because we need to obey our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. What does worry say about God? Worry implies at least one of five things about God, if not all five. Number one, it implies that God isn't there. It denies his existence. Or number two, it implies that God doesn't care. It denies his providence. Or number three, it implies that God doesn't know your problem. It denies his omniscience. Or number four, worry implies that God can't handle this problem. It's too big for God. It denies his power. Or number five, it implies that God doesn't want to give you what you need. It denies his goodness and compassion. If you are worried about tomorrow, you are saying those kinds of things about God your Father. Followers of Jesus must not worry because our Father is faithful. Our fretting is fruitless. Our fear is faithless. Followers of Jesus must conquer every care by seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness and by forsaking those future fears. We're called to take the other path. The one described in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our faithful Father, we confess our tendency to worry. We've all been there. We have all been fretting or distracted, doubting, worrying, wondering about tomorrow. How am I going to get through this, Lord? Forgive us. Help us to learn from the words of Jesus. Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit that we would be people who grow in our desire to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness instead of worry. I pray that we would be people who learn to come to you in prayer, in thanksgiving, to know and to give evidence of that peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. I pray it, Lord, that we would give glory and honor to our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.